And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Whoopi Goldberg's led a miraculous life. She, she was raised by a single mother in a New York City housing project, a high school dropout. She became one of the most decorated performers of our time, the only African-American to earn the EGOT, an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Award. She's won the coveted Mark Twain Award for American Humor. And as the ringmaster of The View, she leads a rollicking public conversation every weekday. I sat down with Whoopi last week uh, for my CNN version of The Axe Files. Here's the full conversation. Whoopi Goldberg, so good to see you again. Thank you, Thank you for being here. You have lived, in, yeah. I want to live. This is your life. I want to live in this life. Yeah, we broke into your. <laughs> we actually broke into your house and stole all this stuff, but we will return it. All right. Uh, um, you had you have led an amazing life, and I want to talk to you about that. But you know, there. I think it's either by law or executive order. You have to talk about Trump first. Ah, oh, so you know, I have to ask you yeah. about him because you've known him for a long time. You you were. You were in the Little Rascals with him. He was uh, Waldo's father, and mm-hmm. you were Buckwheat's mother. This yeah. was back in the 90s. You're yeah. both New Yorkers. Uh, tell me about that. Did you say back then, there goes the next president of the United States? No. You know, look, I, I don't know when that all came up in his head, but he's, you know, he, he's been a fixture in New York, and um, I've had issues not personal issues with him, but, you know, I don't... What was I, your personal relationship? Cordial, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, you don't want to just walk up to somebody screaming in the face. But, you know, I, I saw what he did to the Central Park Five, you know, and it, and it bothered me deeply. The five and young men who were five young wrongly men who accused. wrongly accused of, of beating... Took out an ad and called for the death penalty. And called for the death penalty. And, you know, then the, the nonsense about, you know... Uh, whether Barack Obama was an American yeah. citizen. Yeah. This, this, you, had a, you actually had a pretty mm-hmm. sharp confrontation with him about yeah. this on The View yeah. in 2011. Yeah. Why did that offend you so much? Because I, I know he went to school, and I know he knows that Hawaii was part of the United States. And I know that the real bottom line of that conversation was how can he be our president. Mm-hmm. Look at his name. Look at him. And it's like, listen, man, he won. Just like you won. Everybody's got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But it, he wasn't content to just let that be. And so I'm curious about this, um, whether you think that that was born out of, uh, you know, he says, uh, I'm the least racist person you know. In uh, his mind, he probably is. Uh-huh. What about in your mind? In my mind... He, there could be, it could be just sheer opportunism exploiting race. Well, listen... Which is a racism he, he, of a different sort. It, it's, it's sort of more than that. I think it's an inherent belief that there are inferior people to him. And it would not surprise me because, you know, you listen to some of the things that they talk about his dad and his dad did and how he himself has sort of treated people of color. And so he can say he's the least racist person, but then, you know, you might want to start working on that part. <laughs> you know, you keep you keep saying you're not racist and then you do racist stuff and then you hear racist things and you don't say, hey, that's not how we talk here. So for me, he has a lot of issues, but I I always said he had issues because you can't surround yourself with the people you surrounded yourself with when you become uh, the guy that's running stuff. And, and have people say, oh, no, he's really into to people color. But it's not it's not just him. You you wrote this book called Is It Just Me or Is It Nuts Out There mm-hmm. in 2011? Mm-hmm. It seems like that question has been asked and answered now. But yeah. you were uh, prescient. You said now I've always known that there were bullies in the world. We've seen a lot of it in politics lately as well as in daily life. You see it where people who may be stronger or bigger or better with verbiage than other folks show off. To me, that's what bullying is, showing off. It's saying, I'm better than you. I can take you down, not just uh, physically, but emotionally. Does that describe 
to Donald me, Trump? yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when you know that there are all these kids whose lives are in the balance because they just need to know what am I doing? The DACA kids. The DACA kids. And you know that this is scary for them and scary for little kids who who sort of have heard about it. Am I going to come home and find mommy or daddy gone? You know, when you know that this is this pressure is what you're putting on children, this uh, this anxiousness and you don't take a minute to say, listen, I'm going let's do a state of the state of the conversation for the children since I'm the reason you're anxious. But you haven't done that, you know, because it it wasn't about, I think, becoming the president. It was about winning. He wanted to win, and he won however he could. Do you think he expected to win? Uh, Was he prepared to win? I I think, yes, I think he was prepared to win. I think he thought he was going to come in and say, change that, do this, do that. I don't think he had a big concept of how the government actually works and checks and balances and stuff. But, uh, you know, maybe he's catching up. I don't know. But, you know, I, I, um, I, I am not as concerned about him as I am concerned about the people we're about to lose you know, the moderates on the other end, on yeah, the Republican side. Yeah, this. you know, um, because I believe that moderates can help get stuff done. We hadn't seen, we haven't seen very many of them. They hide out now, you know, because... <laughs> or they retire. Or they retire, you yeah. know. Well, listen, our politics doesn't really allow for it now because the parties are so polarized and and, and the, the, uh, we're redistricted and we're sorted in such a way that the rewards are in a, the wrong place. So you, the big worry that politicians have is that someone on their left or right will, be, will come after them. Well, you know, but that's always been the worry for the politicians. Somebody's going to come after my job. Maybe I ought to do it better. <laughs> you know, um, the idea that you cannot have a a moderate Republican and a moderate Democrat is it's unconscionable to me because I grew up with moderate symbols. That's why you could always have conversations with people. But the yeah, first we were talking time earlier, we both grew mm-hmm. up in New York and yep. the years that we were growing up here, there were John, people like John Lindsay, Nelson Rockefeller, yeah. Yeah. Jacob Javis. Yeah. These were big moderate names. That's right. Republican politics. They don't exist anymore. You got to go down to the field museum to find but see, uh, that's, liberal Republicans. That's that's not good because, you know, listen, sometimes you have to make that change, make that balance. And it's a constant shift because the greatest thing is that no one's ever 100 percent happy. But we make it work and we make we make it better. When I heard Mitch McConnell say when uh, Obama was elected, I'm not going to do anything anything to help this president get where he needs to go. To me, that was a big F you to the United States because he wasn't the president of black people. He wasn't the president of the liberals. He was the president of everybody. Yeah, I I was there. And I remember how how appalling it was. There are people on the other side now who Mm -hmm. say, well, that's what they did to Obama. So we're going to do the same thing. But that doesn't work because then it just becomes the same crap over and over and over. That's why, for me, folks who are up, whoever, even folks who are leaving, I just I just want people in who remember what the promise of America is, not was, but is, because you don't want to obstruct, but you must curtail, you know, when you have. One group who's saying, well, we looked at this and this is what it says. And you're not showing people the information. You know, you have a memo that you keep waving around. But you know what? If you don't have anything to worry about, show everybody the memo. Show everybody and have the discussion. But for me, I I watch people maneuvering and I think, well, you know, you're lying. Now, there are you know, there's a whole network that is dedicated to, you know, making sure that the lies float. 
like, you know, we were in such terrible shape for the last eight years. Well, I actually was alive for the eight years before that. Yeah. You know, but somehow people allowed themselves to be convinced that they were worse off under Obama than they were under Bush. Yeah. Although Obama continues to be popular in in polling. I, mean, I don't know how much. I mean, certainly the base of the Republican Party yes. uh, believes that it leads me to ask you about whether, you know, I work for the president. He's mm-hmm. a good friend of mine and a mm-hmm. good friend of yours, President Obama. How much of Trump was a reaction to uh, to Obama? See, I, I don't know. I I I've look, I knew that a Democrat was not going to win. I knew that because history tells us that there has not been uh, uh, a two term Democrat. And then a newly elected. It's hard for any party to elect a president for a third. It's it's very. It it is rare. Mm -hmm. So I knew it was going to be somebody, but I knew it wasn't going to be Hillary. Just because of the way people were treating Hillary. I knew that wasn't going to happen. You think unfairly? Um, Yeah. You know, listen, you may not like her. You may disagree with her politics. But you cannot... Try someone over and 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 over looking for stuff. You can't put them on television and ask question after question after question after question after question and blame everything on her and still come up with no information without saying, hey, maybe there's nothing there. The fact that they tried to beat a dead horse is is insane. I thought that if Jeb Bush had turned around to Donald Trump, as soon as Wolf Blitzer said, welcome, this is, uh, this is the first national mm-hmm. debate, Jeb Bush should have said, hold on, Wolf, what did you say about my wife? What did you say about my sons? Because, you know, my family, my wife is Mexican, my sons are part. What did you say? And when he didn't check him, then I knew it was done. Yeah. Because there wasn't a and I don't know if I can say that, but in my opinion, there wasn't a cojone in that group. You know, they all let him walk all over. Well, and they also uh, all of them behaved in a way that conformed to what the sort of standard of political debate was. Trump doesn't play by those rules. Mm -hmm. Trump plays by his own rules. He understands television. Yeah. He understands how to cut through. Uh, He has no sense of decorum about what he Mm -hmm, says. mm -hmm. And that, in a weird way, gave him a big advantage. And he came across as authentic. There is this sense that politicians kind of filter everything through Mm -hmm. a seven second Mm -hmm. time uh, time delay and then spit things out. And this was part of Hillary's problem, perhaps part of Bush's problem. Well, I I think on Hillary's end, I mean, when you see just after after they left office, you didn't hear much about Bill, but everybody had something to say about Hillary. Everybody. And none of it kind. None of it nice. Women were not nice to Hillary. Mm-hmm. They were very. Why? Because I think we were sort of entering that place where everybody has something to say about what went on. But you don't like that she stayed with her husband. But that's their relationship. That's their relationship. You don't like how she handled this. You know, uh, okay. But you're telling me that you don't believe that this woman knows what she's doing and how to uh, be part of politics? It makes just, no sense to me. Just returning to, uh, to Obama for a second. How mm-hmm. much of that opposition was rooted in race, in your view? Which opposition? To Obama. Oh, you know what? I think a lot of it was based in race because you remember, I know you remember, but (laughs) when Obama won, a poster came out of Washington, out of somebody's office, and it was all the president's pictures. And then you get to Obama and they got big red lips and a very, um, very stereotyped kind of groove. And you had uh, some of those talk radio people asking Questions like, doesn't he remind you of Curious George? You know, all of those little things that 
I remember hearing reminded me that, you know, that group that never got over the fact that slavery was abolished is still out there. (laughs) It's still out there. So um, you saw the Charlottesville Mm -hmm. uh, events and and the president's reaction to it, uh, his comments about the uh, about the African countries, um, his dealing with uh, Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. Um, what? What is there a strategy there, or is this just visceral? No, that's his base. That's his base. When he keeps harping on the flag, the flag, the flag, the flag, it's because he doesn't somehow realize that our ability to say this is not right, however we do it, is our right to do that. That's a right. You can't take that. But these divisions, Mm -hmm. they've existed in our country. You did some wonderful movies that Mm -hmm. spoke to these divisions going back to the beginning of the republic. He didn't create them. Has he inflamed them? Uh, He's most definitely inflamed them. I mean, really, realistically, I grew up under, you know, a lot of... uh, or grew up in a country where, you know, folks couldn't vote mm-hmm. till the mid-60s. So we knew that people in office didn't always have us in mind when they were making decisions. However, the belief was that we could fight for the right to be seen and heard as Americans. Now, I understand when somebody says, I don't think this represents me, and here's why. I'm not doing a work stoppage. I'm not being disrespectful. I'm kneeling. My back is not to the flag. I'm kneeling, begging to be recognized. Instead, we have somebody said, well, that's disrespecting. It's not disrespecting. You know, let's not forget that we had a segregated armed forces where Thousands of soldiers came home after World War II and couldn't vote. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget those conversations, because what you want to do and you you would think in all these NFL teams where they have men of color, (laughs) they got men of color. Ask them, you haven't been stopped before they recognized you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you been treated? So I thought that people would recognize that this was the most respectful way to do this. That this is part of your right as an American citizen. Instead, people like, well, how dare they do this? Listen, nobody owns these guys. These guys work their tails off. And when they get a bad need, they're done. So this kid, to me, I, I had nothing but respect for him because it's hard to stand and piss in the wind. You know, the president's attacks have hurt the NFL, mm-hmm. he, he, because he is such a polarizing figure, his base reacts to what he says. He can mm-hmm. be a market mover, and he knows that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he know, listen, he knows that everything he said is what they love. Now, this idea that none of his base uh, has environmental cancer, that none of his base uh, has mixed children has uh, mm-hmm. that that his base he feels is one group but see to me when you ta- start talking about changing things in the environment you know we've spent 30 40 years cleaning stuff out of our rivers and cleaning out of the air mm-hmm. and cleaning out of it and no one in his group is saying hey Maybe we want to be a little bit careful with this clean water thing. Maybe we want to really be cognizant of this. Because I remember that when these weren't clean places, children were dying. But there seems to be no conversation. I mean, you know, you put people who don't know Jack do about the places they are except to destroy them, you know, be it the environment or to be uh, head of schools or the, you know, the uh, uh, my brain just exploded. So uh, he watches TV a lot. Mm-hmm. I think you saw that. Mm. Uh, if you had a message for him, what would that message be? You know him. You know what? I- There's a camera somewhere. <laughs> Feel free to. No, I, you know what? It- 
I have no message for him. I have messages for the people around him. Mm-hmm. Change is coming. Mm-hmm. Change is coming. And it's not coming because it's even ideological. It's coming because you're endangering. You're allowing things that endanger our children, our country, our air. That's why the change is coming. You were out there for the marches mm-hmm. uh, in both years. Uh, what motivated you to go out and, and speak? Well, one of the greatest stories is, was of this young woman who, uh, who didn't go to the march last year, but she watched it and then listened to her representative speak. And he joked, gee, I hope the, the women's march ends early enough so that the women can go home and cook dinner for their husbands. And it pissed her off so much, she ran. She ran and she won. And the idea that women said, you know what? I don't, this is not funny to me. (laughs) This is not funny to me. These are, these are scary things for me, you know, because you as a man, you're never going to have women's issues. You're never going to have to make the hard decision to decide whether or not to bring a child into fruition. You will never have to make that decision. So you're not funny to me, you know. So I decided to make sure I got out there and said, you know, hey, listen, we have a lot to do, but we are doing a lot. Mm -hmm. People are saying, women in particular are saying, you know what? I just don't want to do it like this anymore. Well, you can see it in the numbers of women who are voting, who are running for office. There is something clearly going on in the environment out there. But the second Women's March took on a different character in certain ways because this Me Too movement Mm -hmm. has now uh, exploded. Uh, And I'm interested in your thoughts about that because Mm you you, you, there was some great deal of controversy uh, about your defense of of Bill Cosby. Well, here, let's let's be clear. I had questions. I grew up during Tawana Brawley. Mm hmm. I remember the Duke lacrosse team. I remember the Central Park Five. I had questions because I feel you should you should have to answer them so that we know that when we get whoever it is, we can put them under the jail. But if you leave speculation open, there's a good chance nothing will happen. So I said, I have questions. And apparently people didn't understand it because people didn't remember the things that I remember, the Duke lacrosse boys, you know, their lives were ruined. Their lives were ruined. A man took his life in in the Tawana Broadley story. And, you know, the Central Park Five spent all that time behind bars and still didn't get an apology. So I don't want that. I don't want just anybody to be able to say, you're going to go, you're going down. I want us, and I think People get it now. They understand it now. I want us to be able to say, no, no, we got you. And here's how we got you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you ultimately uh, were satisfied in this case that there was uh, more than smoke there. Yeah. In which case? In the Cosby case. Well, I, you know, uh, uh, forgive me, but a pig is a pig, mm-hmm. you know. This is, an, this is an interesting discussion because um, I think all of these egregious examples mm. of harassment, abuse, and worse uh, are rattling the country, and it's a good thing, and uh, it's long overdue. Mm. But there is such a fury about it that, uh, you know, there is no, there is no gradation. There is, you know, I, I think of, um, of, uh, of Senator Franken's case. Mm-hmm which you probably followed. I mean, how yeah. do you feel about what happened there? I think it's, listen, there's an ethics committee. Make them deal with the ethics committee. That's what they're there for. But, for, you know, listen, that horse is out of the barn now. That horse is out of the barn. And so women are saying, look, we're not taking it anymore. So now we're going to go around the long way. Going to go around the long way and we'll come to the place where we say, "Okay, case by case, what's happening here? 
because everyone is now listening, you know. So, uh, you know, I'm a moderate kind of person, and I don't mind taking the time to build a case that puts you away for life, you know. And so I, I, I feel like in order to maintain and change the system as we know it, we have to walk into it and say, hey, you're not allowed to say stuff like that. You're not allowed to say stuff like that. And if you do, these 18 women are going to come up to your office and we're going to dangle you out the window. That seems persuasive. I, I think it's very clear, <laughs> you know, but, you know. Where were, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. I saw all the, um, I saw these uh, displays of solidarity at the award ceremonies, the Oscars, mm-hmm. for example, everyone in, in black. I was really impressed by the women who were courageous enough to step forward in the front end on mm-hmm. the Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. case, mm-hmm. Uh, for example. And then. Behind them came a bunch of very prominent people in show business saying, yeah, we knew about that. He did it to me, too, and so on. And I guess where were all the sort of mega stars when this was going on and why why didn't they step forward earlier? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's easy to wear black and I have theories, you know. If you can't prove it, you might not want to say it. But if you experienced it, can't prove it, you might not want to say it. That's kind of what people did to you. They said, listen, you'll never be able to prove that it was how. And, the, and, the, and there was fear. And there's a lot of fear. I mean, there's fear any time someone in power abuses it. It's scary for the person who's being abused. And that's why for me... Until women said, I will stand with you, I will stand next to you, and we will scream together so that you don't feel like you're out there alone, nothing was going to change. And until you made it dangerous to do. Mm -hmm. There are other elements of of discrimination. I, I did a podcast the other day with Jay Roach, the director, mm-hmm. and he talked about how difficult it was for women directors still in and 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 what a injustice it was mm-hmm. uh, and that that there is there are structural barriers that need to be knocked down. Will this lead to that? Will there be more awareness of that? Well, yeah, but you know we still have so much to do right now. I mean, we still have sixteen women who are accusing the man in charge. Uh, and I'm hoping that the Me Too movement and... Uh, You're talking about the president? Yeah. You never say his name. I don't. Why? Uh, I can't. Really? It's only one syllable. I know. I know. Do you think that it, it somehow honors him to use his name? In conjunction with that word, yeah. You mean president? Uh-huh. I yeah. see. yeah. But you recognize that he is the president. I, you know, I, he's there, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. Listen, I've, this is the first time where I can't wrap my mind around this and that people felt the need to put this in. So, yeah, I know people don't like that I don't do it. I'm fine with that. There's lots of stuff I do people don't like. You know, I, I can live with it. But I do, you know, you asked me earlier about Al Franken. And so I think to myself, well, Al Franken is gone. A lot of people have have lost their kids. This one is still sitting there. So for me, all these women's groups need to be raising money for these women's defense fund so that they can go on and do what they need to do. Because there seems to be no ethics committee for him, you know. And so I think it's important. But, you know, we'll see what happens, man. This is one of those kind of fluid situations where today it's, it's great, but tomorrow who knows what's going to happen. Because every four seconds somebody new is being yeah, it seems sort way. of wheeled out. The whole world knows Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, Karen Elaine Johnson. 
Who is Karen Elaine Johnson? Oh, she's a very nice lady. She's a very nice lady. It's my uh, my real name. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, tell me about growing up as 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 Karen in uh, in New York in the sixties. Oh, uh, listen, in Chelsea in the projects. In the projects, I lived in, I lived in the Chelsea projects, and I was very lucky to be raised by a fairly strange and wonderful woman uh, who had. Uh, another child and my brother and I and my mom um, lived and and grew in the projects and we knew smatterings of different languages because of course there were lots of immigrants coming into Chelsea and and uh, so you had to be able to say hello Mrs. So-and-so is you know so-and-so home may I use the bathroom you had to be able to say this in various languages depending on who you were talking to you said uh, earlier that you, uh, you don't mind being out of line, out of step. Um, and I read somewhere that you, your mother sort of preached that, that it's okay to be different. Well, I mean, she, she didn't preach it. She was really clear about it. So I had a, an experience with a friend of mine uh, where she and I had a difference of opinion of what we should be doing, probably in 14, 15, going to the movies. And my friend wanted me to change my clothes because, you know, I had big afro, big old hippie clothes and just, you know, she she wasn't like that. She dressed differently. And she's like, we're going to the movies. I don't want to go with you dressed like that. I said, well, I'm not changing, you know. And so we went back and forth, back and forth. And so my friend said, "Okay, whatever. So I said to my mom, am I wrong? Should I have changed my clothes? And she said, do you think you were wrong? I said, well, no, I don't think I was wrong. I'm clean. I don't see any reason why I should change. She said, well, then you shouldn't change. I said, but she's mad at me. And my mother said, listen, if you're going to insist on being an individual, people are going to be mad at you because you're not you're not flowing the way everyone else is flowing. And if you can handle that, if you can handle that. Life should be quite interesting. <laughs> well, that's an understatement. Yes. You, uh, you start acting quite young. Mm-hmm. Why? What drew you to that? I just liked it. You could pretend to be other people from other places. You could be from the moon. You could be, uh, you could be um, you know, you could be a fairy tale character. You could be anything. I didn't know because my mom never explained to me that there was a difference in me. I, I always thought I was just a New Yorker. I, I didn't I, I knew I was a Negro, but that didn't seem to be a problem. You know, I knew Negroes and I knew Caucasians and I knew Asian people. So those were sort of names that didn't have anything to do with who we were. So um wasn't until I got older that people said, oh, you know, you're probably not going to be able to do things like that because, you know, you're black. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah. So the so the the fun was inhabiting other yeah. people's lives. Mm hmm. Living these these the sort of fantasy of being in someone else's life. Yeah, you're making it deeper than it was. It's just like you could you could be anything. You mm-hmm. could be anything. You could be a knight. Uh, you could be a dancing frog. You could be a dancing princess. You could you could pretend to know how to do lots of different things, mm-hmm. and that seemed like a fun thing to me. The thing that wasn't fun apparently was school. Well, I'm dyslexic. Um, and there wasn't really a word for it. So, you know, people would say, well, I, you know, you always think teenagers are, or young kids are not trying or applying themselves. And so that's what grownups would say. You're just not applying yourself. It's like, no, this looks weird to me, mm-hmm. you know. And so it took a little while. And, and did they, how did they categorize you? Well, by the time we talked about it, by the time uh, adults were talking about it, it was I was long gone. You dropped out of school. I did. I didn't like school. Yeah. But I What'd loved What did your mom learning. say about that? That, was a, that can't have been, well, it's good to be different. Actually, it was. Really? She yeah. was okay with it? Well, she said to me, listen, if you're not going to go to school, then I need to know where you are and what you're doing. So let's see what's available in New York. Now, you know, you used to be able to go to lectures here or you could do that all for a quarter or a nickel or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know. And so each day I would have to come and say, this is what I did today. 
You know, I wasn't hanging out on the corner. Now, sometimes I was hanging out on the corner, but not always. New York was, uh, I grew up here at yeah. the same time you did, yeah. just a mile from you. Yeah. And uh, it was a pretty lively place. Oh, my goodness. Central Park. You know, you had the Schaefer Music Festival in the summertime and you could gather with people in the park and hear poetry being spouted. You could, you know, you... It, there was change happening. You know, there were yippies, you know, marching against the war and marching against, you know, uh, capitalism. And there were, there were all kinds of conversations happening. And there were all kinds of drugs out there. Yeah. You know. And apparently you sampled a bunch of them. Yes, I did. In, yes, including, I did. Including heroin. I did. Mm-hmm. You know, and LSD and all kinds of stuff. Uh-huh. And... Um, how did that work for you? Well, I don't do it anymore. So mm-hmm. it didn't work that well. You know, I did what most kids do. In the 50s, people drank beer and they, they you know, did stuff like... I did all the same the stuff. 50s, yeah. Yeah, I did all the same stuff. I don't like beer. I like marijuana. Mm-hmm. And then you took off for... Uh, you, you went to California. I went to California. Someone said, um, I have a kid your child's age. Would you come and be the nanny? And I was like, sure. California? It's like, yeah. So we drove and stopped in Lubbock, Texas at the Hayloft Dinner Theater where they performed and then drove to San Diego. And that was sort of life shifting. Warm air (laughs) all the time. Lush plants. And you could thrive out there. So that's what I did. And I got in because my friend Tavis, who I traveled with, was part of uh, the San Diego. You were split up with your husband by then? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Became part of the San Diego Repertory Theater. And then I stayed there for a while and sort of watched my kid grow and go to school. Yeah, you were doing a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Bricklayer. Yes. Yes, I was a bricklayer. Quaffing people who had all gone to their eternal yes. rewards, Ding. making up hair oh. and makeup on dead people. Yes, uh. no one's talked back. <laughs> That's it. Very but no tipping either. Probably no tipping. Yeah. Very good, David. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> and and when did you when did you recognize that you had a gift that you could you could actually make a life as an actor, as a performer, as a comic? Uh, comedy didn't come so much later. I was always an actor. I was always a, a, a person who liked the theater. And, you know, the Hudson Guild Theater was always there. So for me, it was it was never it was never something I wasn't going to do. I always knew I had to do other work, but I liked it. And then I met other actors who were like, yeah, I got a kid. Or let's, you know, put the kids together and let's do these scenes. And so was, was there a moment when you said, Damn, I could, I could actually make a career of this. This could be my job. I could be a success. No, that it, that was not that was not the 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 thinking. The thinking was, oh, listen, I I want to I I want to do this more. How can I do this more than I've been doing it? Well, I can talk to these folks at the rep, but I'm in a improv company and I'm having some fun with this. But maybe I can create some monologues for myself that make it look like I'm really good. Yeah, that's what I'll do. And so that's what I started to do. And you, 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 would, you would have been exposed to so many characters in your life. Were you collecting these characters in your head? Did you, how is it? Because, I mean, I watch these things and it mm-hmm. blows you away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I uh, come from mimics. My mom and her cousin would get together and they could mimic anybody. They'd be doing accents. and So you wanted to play with the, with your, but, you know, the adults never want you to play with them. So, but it was going into my head and I had an aunt who mimicked and my mother was a lover of film, loved movies and television and, and performance. And so it was always in my zeitgeist. No one ever said I couldn't do it. And so um, when I got to San Diego... Uh, I was working with lots of different people and then had a partner uh, called Don Gregory. And we were uh, 
doing two-person work, sketches. And that was great. And then I met another guy years later whose theater company was coming through San Diego to do stuff. And I just liked what they did. And he said, well, we're from San Francisco. We're up there. And, you know, you should come up and, you know, come work with us. And it was like, hmm, maybe I'll try that. So I did, because I figured if I could go across the country, I could go. And you and your daughter uh, went up there. Yeah, we did. And, and how did you end up in East Germany? <laughs> uh, this is something I have a... I'm trying to get my arms around. You well, spent quite a bit of time there. Well, we went back and forth a lot. You know, so here's what used to happen. People would get smuggled out and people would get smuggled in. And you would spend time with a particular group and they would get flown to the U.S. and they'd spend time with your group. And so to be able to go first to Germany and find out that I was the Schwarze Schauspieler, which is the, the black storyteller. And someone says, well, we want you to, to work with this group of actors. You know, you do these workshops and you do these plays. And somebody says, well, we got some folks that, you know, we just want to just come and play with us. So you go and you play and you start talking. And they said, well, just come through here. Come through here and, and spend some time with us. And, so, and then you realize, oh, there's a wall here. I, did I just go through the wall? They're like, so, well, just can you work with them? Because we don't get a lot of time to play with them. <laughs> sure. So you go and you, you'd improv with people. You'd write strange sound poems with them. And it was the greatest thing that could have ever happened. Europe, for me, was the greatest thing that could happen because I'd never been. I had no idea. And my God, when you saw, you know, I went to Scotland and I forget what I was doing. I might have been doing, I can't remember actually, but I ordered food, Chinese food. And two Chinese kids came, and when I asked them what I owed them, they had Scottish accents. <laughs> and I was stunned. I was like, what? You have to talk to me. <laughs> because, of course, if you grew up there, right. you'd have the accent. So you realize that you're insular mm -hmm. until you get out into the bigger world. No one knew there were black people in England until uh, downtown Julie Brown. I knew because I'd been over there. It's like, oh, you have an English accent. <laughs> and people would be like, okay, explain to me the shock of yours. It's that I'm American. Yeah. We, you know, you all over here can go to different countries in one fell swoop. We, we get Canada. We love Canada, but it's not <laughs> the same. When you got back, mm -hmm. you started touring with a show of your own of these stories you mm -hmm. uh, put together. Yes. And, uh, and Mike Nichols yeah. happened onto one of these performances. Yeah. And that was life-changing. Yes, it was. It was uh, stunning, really. Because, um, let's see, Barbara Barry came to see me. Bette Midler came to see me. I was doing a piece at DTW here in New York and it was all about um, monologues mm -hmm. and it was great to get the invitation to come because I got to spend time with my mom again I was came back home and blah 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 and I had just read with my daughter um, or heard Alice Walker read The Color Purple mm -hmm. so before I left to come to do this little tour I wrote her a letter that basically said, this is one of the greatest things I've ever heard. And if they ever make a movie of it, here's all my resumes. Of it, you know. So I get to New York and waiting at my mom's house <laughs> in the project is this purple letter 
from Alice Walker that basically says, listen, I know all about you. I go see your shows all the time. I'm up in the Bay Area. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh. And I've passed your stuff on. It's like, oh, okay, cool. And then I start doing my shows and, you know, we got four people come and then maybe two. Because, <laughs> you know, nobody knew what was going on. And, and then a man named Mel Gussow came to the show. From the from the New York Times, Times. and wrote (laughs) the most extraordinary thing. And that review, I think it was on like a Wednesday by Friday night, we were sold out downtown. And to me, it was like, oh, 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 (laughs) because suddenly People are really actors that I, I'd always admired were coming to my show. Yeah. And all I want to do is talk to them about all the movies that they made. <laughs> you know, because it'd be like, oh, my God, you don't know how much I love your work and blah, 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 blah. So Mike Nichols walks in. And Mike Nichols, my, no, Mike here's what happened. I'm backstage and my mother comes. <laughs> she says, um. I normally don't do this with you, right? I said, I, I don't know what I'm saying right to her. She said, well, I just have to tell you there's somebody really amazing in the audience. Bye. I was like, Hi. And she left. So I go, <laughs> I go out and I think, okay, somebody Are amazing. you scouring the audience there with you? Well, I, I'm not scouring, but I'm aware mm-hmm. in case. And I, I don't. Like nothing is good. Like when I saw Bette Midler, I knew it was Bette Midler because I'd always adored her. I uh-huh. knew I knew what. And Barbara Barry, who's a wonderful actress who made a movie about an interracial relationship called One Potato, Two Potato, was in the audience one night. And I I was such a fan of hers. I knew her instantly. So the show was done. It's really great. I go backstage. I say, Ma, she says, did you see him? I was like, I didn't. Who is it? Said, How could you miss him? I was like, who is it? She said, it's Mike Nichols. I said, the graduate Mike Nichols? <laughs> yes. She's like, yes, he was sitting right over there. And then I hear, <laughs> and I opened the door open. I was, oh, shit. And I closed the door. <laughs> and then my mother said, you might want to open again. You might want to just. <laughs> so I did. And there, there he was. And. He was very moved by um, a piece I did about being in Amsterdam and going to the Anne Frank house. Yeah, I saw the piece. Yeah. Wonderful piece. The, the, this was the, the, the junkie yeah. and the Anne Frank Museum. Yeah. Just amazingly moving piece. So what did he say? He was weeping. And he said, I don't know whether you know this. And, you know... Oh, maybe you don't know. Mike had a very distinctive way of speaking. Yeah. So he'd say, I don't know if you're aware of this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I was on the last boat out of Germany to America. Uh, yeah. And my mother, who was aware of all that information, said, yes, I read that. I don't know if Karen knows it, but I'm aware of it. And he said, what made you write this? I said, well, it was such an extraordinary experience to be in the Anne Frank house and to see Shelley Winters' Oscar and to go upstairs and know what that... What transpired there, yeah. What happened there. Mm-hmm. I said, and I wanted to tell people, but I, I, you know, nobody wants a travelogue. And I had to figure out the best way to, to explain to people why I was so moved. And I thought, well, I'll put it in the mouth of a junkie who is a... You know, who's a highly educated uh, either guy or girl, no one's sure what Fontaine is, um, who can speak to lots of different aspects of what I was feeling. And yeah. so I was able to, to sort of talk about everything from being on the flight. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it, it's a brilliant, brilliant piece. And he put you on Broadway. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. And the show was an incredible yeah. success. Yeah, yeah. And then Alice Walker comes through and yep. sends your stuff to Yeah, she Steven, sent it to Steven, Steven Spielberg, Spielberg and Quincy Jones. Um, What's going through your head at this point? Because you're doing like, you know, 
improv in San Diego a mm-hmm. few years earlier, mm-hmm. smuggling in and out of East Germany. Yeah. And now you're on Broadway and you're sitting in front of Steven Spielberg. Mm. Well, no. I, so I did the show on Broadway. And then I, in, in the interim, I got a manager and an agent. And the manager, whose name was Sandy Gallen, said, um, Steven Spielberg wants to see you when you go back west. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to be in, you know, Indiana Jones, man. I'm going to be running right next to Indy. And I wasn't sure why he wanted to see me, but I knew I had some time. And so I, I kept doing my show. Now, in the interim of all of this, Mike Nichols is literally taking me places and I'm meeting, you know, literally my heroes, Paul Simon, you know, who I I got to be friends with and and Carl Reiner, who I I am got to be friends with and and Warren Beatty and just name them. And I got to meet them. And so I was thinking, boy, this is fun. And my mom, I got to have her treated like a platinum queen, you know, because she was the mother of the of yeah. the hot new thing. Yeah. And so when I finished the run, I, I went to Los Angeles before I went back to Berkeley. And I, I, I go in to meet with, <laughs> with Stephen and I'm just looking at him and I'm thinking, Wow, I'm at Amblin. This is Amblin. This is where E.T. lived. This is where all th- all these things happen. And he says, so I want you to do your show, if you wouldn't mind, and, and break in our little theater here at Amblin. I was like, no problem. I'm really good for this. And then I tell him how much I love E.T. and... And you did Blee Tea. And I, I uh, another great, explained to Another him, great bit. Yes, about uh, Blee Tea and all this stuff. Uh, oh, no, it's I don't e. tell E.T. landing him. in Oakland. Yes. I don't tell him that yet. Um, but I say, listen, I do lots of different stuff. Do what do you want? He said, well, do whatever you think you would like to do. So I said, okay. Um, and they said to me, the agents and managers said, do not do Blee Tea. E.T. is sacred to Stephen. Do not do Bleed It. So now I'm backstage and there's curtains and I peek and I see Michael Jackson and I see Quincy Jones and I see Ashford and Simpson and I see Steven Spielberg. I see all kinds of people and I'm thinking, oh, this is really bizarre. <laughs> and then I come out and I do the show and they have a great time. And someone says more. I said, well, (laughs) I was asked not to do more. Uh, And Stephen said, well, why not? I said, well, because it's it's about E.T. I call it Bleety. And what would happen, you know, in 1980, you know, how long had I been doing it? So 1981. What would have happened if E.T. had landed in Oakland, which was, you know, a tough city there? So he says, OK, you have to do it. So I was like, OK, but I'm telling you, <laughs> you might not like this as much as other stuff. And the story basically is uh, these kids find uh, Bleety and they take him home to the projects and he can't phone home because, you know, in those days you had. Right. Uh, phone booths uh, on the streets and none of those work. So he couldn't call anybody. But he become he gets acclimated into being in Oakland and he uh, sports a jerry curl, which was a style of hair mm-hmm. that looked like it was dripping. And and he'd have on like the John Travolta suit, the, the you know, the suit with the big shoes. And and so he's walking around and he's running, you know, prostitutes out of his and so when his people and his people come to get him, he shoots them all up <laughs> because he doesn't recognize them because he's acclimated yeah. and forgotten yeah. his base yeah. where he comes from. Yeah. And and Stephen was far from upset. He was 
blown away. Blown away. Yeah. You got the part. Yes, I did. Celie and yeah. the color purple. How much did it mean to you to play that role? You know, you talked earlier about the challenges that we have mm-hmm. in this country. It seems important to remember the progress we've also made mm-hmm. and, uh, and the history that you helped bring to life in that film and other films. How much did it mean to you to play that role? Well, I thought she was a, a brilliant character. As it turns out, she, uh, she bothered a lot of people, particularly men did not like her and felt that Alice Walker's book did not represent uh, black men the way they felt that uh, they should be represented. Mm-hmm. Um, the NAACP didn't like our movie because they were mad that Stephen directed it. And so it, those were all the those were all the challenges. Like there were a couple of times where I sat in a in a in a set and I looked over and I thought, "Wow, I am sitting on the set of a Steven Spielberg movie." <laughs> And start laughing way down inside. Or Oprah and I looking at each other going, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, because there we were, brand new kids. And we were doing what we did. And, and it, it, it was a great experience. You, uh, I, I, I have to talk to you about uh, uh, another friend of yours. Uh, you did comic relief famously in the 80s and 90s to raise uh, money for uh, the homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Billy Crystal and Robin Williams. Yeah. And uh, I had one chance to meet Robin Williams. He came to do an event for Barack Obama. Right. In, and uh, it was interesting to be around him because he was almost um, stoic before he went on stage. Mm-hmm. And then there was this explosion yeah. of creativity, much like yourself. I mean, things that takes a, an incredible imagination. <laughs> yeah. to, uh, to and, and he was brilliant. And then after... Uh, he was again kind of withdrawn and quiet and yeah. and um, so and and obviously he he his life ended tragically. Were those struggles apparent to you no you know what and and i i won 't say that his life ended tragically it ended too soon mm-hmm. um, but Robin was uh, unlike anybody else uh he his mind worked at amazing speeds, but he was incredibly quiet as well. You know, the the thing that Billy and Robin and I shared was the fact that we knew each other. You know, and I'd known Robin a long time, but we knew each other and looked out so that Robin didn't have to be on with us, you know. Mm-hmm. When other people came around, you know, they expected him to be Robin Williams, and he was. Mm-hmm. But the Robin, I think, that Billy and I knew was a very different Robin. He's like a normal guy like us, except faster, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I was touched by that. I've had, uh, I, I've lost family members uh, to suicide, mm-hmm. and, um, and so I'm really attuned to this issue of, of mental illness yeah. and treating it as an illness mm-hmm. and giving people the freedom to get the help uh, that they need. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't mean in any way no, to, no. To, to, to demean uh, the way his life uh, ended, ended yeah. or, but I do think it, it speaks to the fact that we have to start treating uh, well, I, these Well, I don't think... I, and, and Robin might have had depression, but I do think that whatever medication he was dealing with or taking did not service him well. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I think of Robin, I think of his love of family. I think of all the stuff that he gave and how he may have been wrestling with whatever, you know, you read different tabloids. They say, well, he had this, he had this, he had this, he had this. I don't know what he had. I don't know uh, that that was something that was in his mind to do. But I do know that that, was, that would not have been the way that the man I know would have gone. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So... 
I talk he did about- a really stirring interview with Mark Maron mm-hmm. podcast, mm-hmm. and there was five minutes in that in which he talked about fighting these mm-hmm. impulses and fighting mm-hmm. these demons, and uh, it was just so powerful and, in retrospect, sad. Um, but well, but don't don't I, I don't know if everybody struggles it, with it, but I I think most people do. I think most people come to a place where they think. Is it worth it for me? Am I worth going on? And sometimes you can rescue yourself. Sometimes somebody comes in and they get you. I think most people struggle with all these things. These are not new. But I also... I think people need to know they can reach out and and get help. Well, I I believe you can reach out and get help. I wouldn't do it on the Internet. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? No, I hear you. I, 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 so what about yeah. your life? You, 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 you've had this incredible journey. Have? <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. I'm not suggesting the yeah, journey. I'm just saying. I'm sorry, Whoopi. <laughs> I have some news for you. Uh, but, uh, and you've done it in your own way. Yeah. You're a, you're a mega movie star and what they call an EGOT. You've won yes. an Emmy and a Grammy and an Oscar and I've a got Tony. I've steal, but you and, know. And, and yet you, you famously say, I'm not a glamorous i'm not going to do the glamour thing well i mean some people can i've tried it doesn't work well for me it's not my favorite thing and i don't carry it off well but listen i I have a really interesting career interesting life i do what i i want to do um i fight battles all the time you know half the time i do a show every day half the half the time the entire country uh, half of the country hates you and half of the country is okay with it do you you I mean, going back and looking at a lot of your work Mm -hmm. before this show, uh, I was, and I told you this beforehand, I I was really blown away by what a creative genius uh, you are. And, you know, the view is a different kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're contributing to the dialogue and the debate. But part of me was saying, man, I, I want her back out there doing this other thing. Yeah, you know, I miss it, but I'm also, nobody's checking for me. You know, it's not my turn right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to have a turn in another place. So, you know, we're riding, I'm making sweaters for, you know, holidays. I'm doing, uh, I have a great uh, menstrual line of medical, uh, of a product that contains medical marijuana called Whoopi and Maya that I I like a lot because, you know, people have cramps and no one will talk about it. And so I thought this was a good way for me to get people to understand that medical marijuana is a, is a very good way to go in terms of alternative medicine and better ways to maybe treat the environment. If you've grown tobacco, maybe you want to grow hemp, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, so you're doing, lots, doing, doing other stuff. Other stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and when there's time for me to make a movie. I was trying to uh, direct a film and we just could not get the money we needed on Emmett Till. Uh-huh. And now, you know, many people say they're making them. And I say, OK, but, you know, the uh, Keith Beauchamp, who is the guy that uh, did the documentary and, and got the case reopened, uh, wrote the script. And, you know, people say, oh, this is so amazing. But, you know, people didn't want to make it. So, so you find other things to do. And I just don't want to be, um, I don't want to be bored. I don't want to bore myself. I just want to have a good time and try to make a, a difference here and there. And, you know, cop to it when you're wrong and cop to it when you're right, you know, and, and stand up and say, I don't think this is okay. And sometimes, as I said, you know. You're right in the wind and the spray is blowing back on you. But sometimes people say, you know what? I've been thinking about this and it's not right. I'm going to stand with you. And that's great because then we all evolve and make one step forward. Well, you've had so many different platforms in your life and all of them have been impactful. So I, uh, as a consumer of your work, I want to thank you. Thank you. thank you for being here. Man, good to see you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. 
And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.